Welcome to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast, a weekly conversation about mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. For more information or to find a therapist in your area, visit our website at therapyforblackgirls.com. While I hope you love listening to and learning from the podcast, it is not meant to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for joining me for session 258 of the Therapy for Black Girls podcast. We'll get right into the conversation after a word from our sponsors. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Forum understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. I've seen quite a few videos on social media recently of young women soliciting help in finding the perfect dress for graduation. Might I suggest you add Macy's to your list? They have lots of options for dresses that will transition perfectly from under your gown to that incredible dinner with family after the ceremony. Check out options from brands like On 34th, Michael Kors, DKNY, and many more. Shop at Macy's.com or in-store. You may have heard that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? Regardless of blood type, every day our blood saves lives and eases the pain of those living with sickle cell. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. Buying your first car can make you feel like a superstar as it's a big purchase, but it can take time to get there. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. 
Intuit helps you take control of your finances through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Where in your body do you carry joy? Isn't that a profoundly beautiful, but maybe also difficult to answer question? But it's an important one, and one I want you to spend some time thinking about. To help us dig a little deeper into what Black joy is and why it's important, today I'm joined by Tracy Michelle Lewis Jiggetts, the author of Black Joy, Stories of Resistance, Resilience, and Restoration. Tracy and I chatted about how to get in touch with joy, why joy can sometimes be hard to access, the importance of Black joy, particularly when things are difficult, and she shares a beautiful excerpt from her book. If something resonates with you while enjoying our conversation, please share it with us on social media using the hashtag TBGInSession. Or join us over in the Sister Circle to talk more in depth about the episode. You can join us at community.therapyforblackgirls.com. Here's our conversation. I'm so happy to be chatting with you today, Tracy. I am so excited to be here. (laughs) So, so excited. So we will get started. So I'd love for you to tell us to begin by saying a little bit about what inspired you to write and release the collection of essays that you have in this book. I think the initial inspiration was the work that I had been doing myself in therapy. I had been working with the therapist about grief and trauma and doing some deep trauma work. And she posed a question to me that I couldn't answer as therapists I want to do, which is, what does joy feel like in your body? And at the big age of 40 something, I could not answer her. I knew that I'd experienced joy, but I couldn't touch it. I couldn't access it. And so that began the long work of being intentional, of figuring out what joy felt like and creating moments of joy. And I happened to write one essay that I had about joy with my daughter in the rain, dancing, and that was published. And then that began the whole journey to this book. I love that. And you've talked before about how connecting with your daughter's joy has really helped you to have a fuller experience. Can you say a little bit more about that? Absolutely. She is what I often call the freer version of myself. And so there's a lot that in the stuff that I gathered over the years that I learned how to tamp down or parts of myself that I learned to hide that she doesn't have. She doesn't have those boundaries, those fences, if you will. And so oftentimes I look to her for liberation and joy can be. And it just so happens in that one instance We were trying to stop our greenhouse from flying away in the middle of a storm and it started to rain and she started dancing and I started dancing and it was spontaneous. We were having our Gen Z, Gen X battle. (laughs) And I think at that moment to be able to say, oh, wow, to connect the freedom to the joy that we were having in that moment. And so she is my little mirror and I get to see how joy plays out for her and how intentional. She is so intentional about her joy. Every day she writes the things that she really would love to do. And she writes in her joys, not her schoolwork, but she writes in make waffles with mommy or writes in, I want to go play at the park. And she's intentional about it. And it taught me to be intentional. Like today I am going to 
dot, 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 whatever my joy looks like for that day. I love that. So this is me now trying to sneak some free parenting advice for you, Tracy, (laughs) because I often feel like there is a very undue burden on us as Black parents around how to really protect our kids' joy, right? Like it feels like we have to have some very difficult conversations with them. I feel way too early, but it is also in their best interest to have the conversations early just around like stuff like racism and stuff. And so I would love to hear from you how you are working to try to also protect that joy for her. I am definitely a work in progress when it comes to that. And I have a lot of grace for my parents and my grandparents who were harder on us because of the fear of what could happen once we stepped outside their doors. I don't think I'd always had that grace, but as a parent now, all of those sensations, all of those thoughts that I have about how they're going to receive her freedom when she steps outside my door, it's scary. And so there has to be a balance. I mean, we've had racial violence hit pretty close to our home. And so I've had to have those hard conversations with her about why someone thought it was okay to enter a grocery store and kill our elder cousin. And that's hard, hard. And it's mostly hard because I have not yet worked out my own grief around it. (laughs) And so now I am tasked with helping her navigate her grief. And I think the biggest thing, I don't know if I have parenting advice to give, except to say that the communication lines are constantly open. And there was one instance where my daughter was having a tough day and there wasn't a whole lot that I could offer her except hugs and kisses and love because she was just not having a good day, like like many of us. But I heard her in her room and I happened to be in another part of the house, but I heard her saying, I am calm. I am safe. I am well. I am calm. She was saying it over and over again. And that's a mantra that I had taught her that she'd seen me do when I was having a tough day. And so I think the biggest thing is keeping those lines of communication open and also trusting that they are listening and hearing and taking it in. Mm -hmm. And that's where I am right now with this preteen. It might change in five years when she's 16. Understandable, understandable. So at the start of your book, you feature a Toni Morrison quote, there is no time for despair, no place for self-pity, no need for silence, no room for fear. We speak, we write, we do language. That is how civilizations heal, which is such a beautiful and powerful quote. I love to hear what about that quote resonated with you enough for it to be the start of your book. Yeah. I think in the moments when I allowed myself to sit in the fear of what it would mean to put this very intimate collection of stories out into the world, Toni Morrison's quote and her body of work in general was a reminder of why it was necessary or is necessary. Because there were moments <laughs> writing this book where I'm like, oh no, if I should put this out or I'm giving so much of myself in this book in order to talk about what joy looks like and how it lives alongside all of these other big emotions and feelings we have. And I think I had to keep coming back to that quote, like we do language, like as artists, as writers, it is our responsibility, our task, if you will, to chronicle, document what is going on in our world, and also to use the art 
as a way to help people heal as we're navigating whatever it is going on. Today, it's a pandemic and racial unrest. Yesterday, it was another thing or it was all those things. And so I think that was why it was important for me to open the book with that because... I want everyone to be reminded of that also, that this is what we do. We do language. We tell the stories, even the ones that are very hard to tell. Mm -hmm. So you have been, I feel like a lean, mean writing machine for like the past (laughs) year plus, right? Even though you've been doing it much longer. I wonder how this collection of essays is different than the other work that you've produced this year. Mm, It's very different. And that I think with this, because I was telling so many stories from my own life, I felt a kind of liberation on the page that I have not felt before. I gave myself permission to just tell it, (laughs) you know, and to be as vulnerable as I possibly could, not in an effort to spill the tea, all right, or to get back at maybe people in my life, but mostly to get it out of me, right? And also to help other people realize that they are not alone in the journey and that joy is still possible. As a matter of fact, it is our birthright and that it can live alongside all this other stuff you might be feeling in this moment. And so it was very different. Some of the essays were written in different forms prior to the book deal, But even going back into the essays that maybe have been written in some other form, I still put something different on it. I don't even know if I know like the language for what that something was, but I just came to the page very open to hearing what I needed to say. And that's something that I can't say I necessarily did in my previous work, or maybe I did in like small doses, but not in like this sort of surrendering stance that I had when I set aside writing this book. Mm -hmm. If you feel comfortable sharing, Tracy, I can imagine writing a book that feels this personal. And you've already talked about like working through some stuff with your therapist, which is how this whole thing opened up. Also, were there pieces of the book that you found yourself writing and then having to go back to your therapist to talk about? Like, what was that process of working with the therapist at the same time as you're writing this very personal collection? For sure. (laughs) My therapist probably knows every story in this book, whether she's read them or not, because sometimes I would even bring small passages to her and we would talk about what it brought up in me to write that. And that was very helpful because it sometimes when you're writing very intimate details, you can get kind of lost in the sauce. And so, I mean, this still needed to be a book that people could gain some, it's not prescriptive, but there is like an instructive quality to it. So like I had to be able to come out of that story and be able to say, where is the joy in this? How was I able to access it? And that had to be a very real thing that I wrote. And sometimes I didn't get there until I brought it to my therapist. My therapist was very much a integral part of this writing process for me. Mm. I don't think I could have gotten to the end of the book had I not had those weekly sessions. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that it was a supportive place for you to work through some of that stuff. Now, looking back, is there anything that you left out of the book that you now wish you would have put in there? I can't say there's anything that I left out because I got a lot in it <laughs> that I would have put in. There are still some essays and chapters that make me like a little nervous 
I don't think there's anything I would have taken out and I don't think there's anything I would put in. There's 36 essays in the book. There were about 40 that I wrote. So there were some that I held back, but the reasons for that were just about the flow of the three movements, resistance, resilience, and restoration, and not necessarily about any fear I had or anything like that. Got it. Got it. So I wonder if you can just give us a basic definition of what joy looks like and feels like to you. Mm. So in 2019, I had a severe health crisis that came on the heels of my elder cousin being murdered, doing a lot of racial reconciliation and diversity, equity, inclusion work on the campus where I taught. And my body was just like, listen, we done, sit down. (laughs) And so for eight months, I was pretty much in the bed, getting a bunch of tests done and all those kinds of things. As I was simultaneously going to therapy and doing this work, when she asked me that, we really focused on the embodiment of joy, the somatic experience of joy. And so for me, joy in my body feels like this warmth in my chest. It feels like like a tingling in my stomach. There's a rising excitement that almost gives me goosebumps. Like I was very intentional. I keep using that word, but I feel like that's appropriate about like really spelling out what joy feels like in my body. And so when I went back to my therapist and I said, I got it, I got it. This is what it feels like. She's like, okay, so now you have a screenshot, a snapshot of what joy feels like so that when those other emotions are super big in your body, like rage, like grief, you have something you can access it. And same way, if I said, Dr. Joy, what does anger feel like in your body? Most people can answer that, right? Like they can tell you, or what does sorrow feel like? But sometimes it's harder to like pinpoint joy. So for me, being able to understand what the embodiment of joy feels like is step one. Being able to call it up is step two for me to be able to access it and be like, okay, I remember how I felt when I watched This Is Us. Cause that's my jam. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting that you describe that as joyful because it is great, but it also is very sad at the same time. (laughs) But you know, the thing is, it is, it's the storytelling, right? Like I'm a writer. So it's like, oh, like, what are they going to do? Are they going to like, I get so invested in like how they craft the story. And that is exciting to me. So that if I am having a low day or a dark day, I will go to that memory about how I felt when Randall did such and such to Beth. And I will try to, and it works. Like Mm. it doesn't take away the grief. It doesn't take away the rage, but it kind of right sizes me in that moment. So I'm not going off the deep end. And so for me, joy is all of those physical, the adrenaline, the dopamine rush, all of those things. And for me as a black woman, it is all those things within the context of living in this melanin and what that entails which is the reason why black the black on black joy really does matter to me. Why do you think it is often so difficult for us to recall what joy feels like as opposed to really understanding what sorrow and grief and all of those things feel like? You know, for me, I honestly, Dr. Joy got me telling the truth here. I think it's because I didn't feel I was worthy of joy. Mm. I think there's a part of me that pushed it down. Like I'm not one that believes that joy is something we go have to go out and find or that we have to conjure up. Maybe conjure, but 
not in the way that often that's used as if it's something outside of us. For me, joy is always present with my rage and my grief and my love and all those emotions. It's just that I have to make room for it. I got to pack down beneath all the other big emotions of rage and grief and sorrow. And those are easily accessible. And if you've had enough, especially as Black people, people of color, if you had enough experiences and encounters around race, it could feel like daily microaggressions, the constant trauma porn that we see on the social media, the constant conflict that we have to maybe engage with personally. It could feel so big that, yes, I can describe rage because I'm there most of the time. Yes, I can describe sorrow because I'm so deeply sad about X, Y, and Z. And joy feels like something that is not accessible or that we're not worthy of. And for me, that's where I went to the therapist. She would take me back to a point in time in my childhood where, like, when was the first time you recognized joy? You know, and for me, I felt like joy was taken from me. And so I had been striving to try to make room for it ever since, but in really odd and <laughs> destructive ways. I think to answer your question, the other emotions feel so very present in our yeah. bodies and in our minds that joy often, we either don't believe we're worthy of it or we just can't see it in the moment. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I've run into is people feeling guilty about joy, especially when things feel really difficult, like they have for like the past two plus years, right? Like, you know, there's so much grief, so much sadness, there's war, there's so much going on that it often feels guilty for people to kind of tap into things that are lighthearted. But I think it's important for us to remember that that is what helps us to float in the difficult moments, right? Like you talk about like being able to recall a scene or something that made you have one of those deep belly laughs, like that is important for that reason. Absolutely. That guilt piece <laughs> is huge. I mean, I had a conversation with someone and they were saying that sometimes they feel guilty because their ancestors, their great grandmother didn't have the options that they have. You know, our ancestors are rooting for us. They want us to have these feelings and emotions that maybe they weren't able to tap in. And also they knew how to tap into it despite, <laughs> you know, like they were the ones that taught us the resilience that we now kind of identify with. And so, yeah, the guilt piece is huge. I remember 2020 professionally for me was a great year. And how do I say that? How do I say it was a great year for me? I cracked down doors and did this. How do I say that knowing full well that people lost so much in that first year of the pandemic? So I get that 100%. Yeah. And I know you and I have also had conversations around how to protect that, right? Like in what spaces can you share? Like, mm -hmm. oh, I actually had a really good year against the backdrop of, you know, like so many other things going on or people losing their jobs, you know? So can you say more about how you also work to protect those things that feel joyful to you? Yeah, I think one of the things I emphasize, I'm not just emphasizing this because I'm on therapy for Black girls, right? Like therapy is the thing that was my constant reminder, right? When I would go off on a tangent about how I felt like some friends weren't really able to embrace what was happening to me in the moment or whatever, she would remind me that I don't have to be ashamed of, I don't have to hold back but that I can set boundaries as to who is actually safe enough for me to share this joy with, right? And so I, I think I'm still learning that. I think I'm still trying to figure out 
and be okay with some spaces not being the space where I can say all the things I'm thinking, all the things I'm feeling. But from our conversation, you know, that's where my sister friends come in. That's where my girlfriends and the group chat, you know, my group chat, despite what everybody's going on when the book came out, folks was just like, yo, I was in Target. I saw it. I took a picture. Here you go. Like people were cheering me on. And so that gave me the safety that I maybe could not have expressed it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. More from my conversation with Tracy after the break. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Forum understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Forum believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Forum is there. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It's crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a back seat. That's where release the pressure comes in. It's all about us, Black women seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or our community, your health is invaluable. Let's help to get our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head over to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, online and in-store. Some of my favorites are the jewelry from Hey Maeve and the skincare products from Kaja. For the entire month of May, join Macy's in supporting AAPI-owned fashion brands. You can show your support by donating online or by rounding up in-store to benefit APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Join me by rounding up your purchase to the nearest dollar at checkout to support API scholars, an educational nonprofit. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander owned brands at Macy's.com or in store. You may be aware that most people who are Black have O type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies and life-saving measures. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? 
You, along with the American Red Cross, regardless of your blood type, can help by donating blood. Every day, our blood saves lives and eases the pain for those living with sickle cell. When you donate blood, there is a direct, positive impact within our community. Right now, there is great need for blood donations in the African-American community. Every donation counts and makes a difference in someone's life. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. How many times have you arrived in Orlando and suddenly realized you forgot the kids? But then you remember you had no intention of bringing the kids. You are in Orlando to enjoy yourself. It's an amazing opportunity to have fun and experience all the fun Orlando has to offer. Sure, Orlando is known as the theme park capital of the world, but there's so much more to this destination. It's the place where adults can become kids again. And happy hour happens any hour with never-ending food festivals, fresh new dining experiences, and outdoor adventures from zip lining to its beautiful natural springs. And of course, fireworks every single night. Plus, you have loads of entertainment options, see unique neighborhoods, and can even visit their blossoming arts and culture. Orlando has everything for an amazing getaway with your loved ones or friends, including exciting thrill rides, lush, lazy rivers, and world-class golf and spas. Yes, there's more to see, do, and experience than you'd expect. In Orlando, anything is possible if you can imagine it. Plan your escape today and save at visitorlando.com. You talk a lot in the book about your relationship with your sister friends and your grandmother and your aunties and other black women. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about how your connections with other black women have been a space for joy for you. Absolutely. I think I first observed it in my grandmother. When I was like two or three years old, my grandmother watched me while my mother went to work. And she had a girlfriend, Miss Violet, who was fabulous. Miss Violet would come over, face beat to the gods, you know, just like, and they would laugh and cackle and talk about like Young and the Restless and, and play Stevie Wonder and the miracles. And they just had this dynamic. It's me at 40 something looking back in hindsight. I don't think I recognized that two and three that what was happening. But now that I know the backstories, now that I know what my grandmother might have been going through and the stories that are not so great, it makes that observation of her girlfriend dynamic like richer because I understand that that was her safe space. That was the place where she could lay her burdens down, so to speak. And so for me, that was a starting point. And my dynamic with Black women over the years has always been me seeking that safe experience. And sometimes I've had that and sometimes I have not. I joined sorority. I've done all of the things that we do as Black women. But I think it's only been within the last decade or so that I can say that I've been able to create or craft these relationships that feel really safe and really wondrous in all the ways that Black girl relationships, you know, sisterhoods are. Mm -hmm. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah. 
You mentioned earlier the importance of Black on Black joy. Can you say more about what that is? So I get a lot of comments from people outside of the culture community, like, why do you have to put Black and race on joy? Why can't we just have joy? And the way that I clarify that is that, or define it, I guess, is joy is a universal thing that all human beings have access to. It's our birthright. But Black joy (laughs) is all of those wonderful things within the context of the very specific experience I have as a Black woman, Black people have in this country, in this world. I don't choose to ignore the residue of the transatlantic slave trade or Jim Crow or any of these things that we've experienced. And what I learned was, and what was exciting about writing this book, was that our ancestors been knowing right? Like they've been knowing how to access that joy. It's the old hymn, this joy I have, the world didn't give it and the world can't take it away. This undercurrent of joy, even when Black happiness wasn't accessible. And I make the distinction in the book between happiness and joy. Like happiness is this temporary momentary thing. Sometimes it's external, right? Whereas joy is an undercurrent that can be always be present, even when the situation or the circumstances aren't particularly happy. And our ancestors understood that. And they understood how to move those more traumatic experiences through their body. They would rock back and forth in church. They would whine and do their thing at the juke joint. Like they Like all of these ways... They just didn't have the language of bilateral stimulation or eye movement desensitization. They didn't have that, but they intuitively understood that joy was theirs. They could access it and nobody could take it from them. And if that meant hand games on the plantation where they got touch and intimacy in a way that wasn't exactly seen as that, then that's what they did. Right. And so the Black on Black joy matters because it's a particular and distinct experience and context that lives outside of the general experience. Yeah, and I think we see it in so many different forms now, right? Like, I think the the clearest example is like the jokes from Black Twitter anytime oh. something ridiculous happens, yeah. right? Like, it is it's very much like the shared language. And, you know, I live for those days because, you know, the memes are going to be so hilarious. Exactly. So I think that there are some very particular ways that we continue to do that with one another. Absolutely. It's distinct. They're like, that can't be duplicated in any other realm. What Black Twitter does with like Thanksgiving at a Black family's <laughs> house, right? And like how we have, like we all have different experiences, but somehow there's this thread. Yeah, Black people aren't monolithic, but we know Blackness when we see it. And like, that's what's being pulled through those tweets, pulled through all of the memes and stuff. Like it feels like community, even though it's big and it's global and all that. So how do you want people to understand and engage with Black Joy? Good question. I think I want people to read this book and decide that, or maybe even just understand that the pathway to healing is very much connected to how we experience or access our joy. And so I have these three movements, like Black Joy is resistance, resilience, and restoration. But the biggest chunk of the book is around resilience and restoration. It's around healing. It's around like, if we never saw the issue of racism and our Black Joy, as far as it being something that we wield as resistance, takes a long time for us to see like the fruit of that. It is immediately an opportunity for us to heal. 
from some of the traumatic things that we experience as Black people. And so I think I want us who read this <laughs> to begin that work of identifying what joy feels like in their body and being able to call it up and then being intentional about writing in their joy and making it a priority because it expands you. Joy makes you bigger so that the rage and the grief and the other stuff can't take as much space because you've made room in your body and in your mind and your heart and your spirit for joy to take up more space, right? But there's work that you have to do up to that point. And so that's what I hope. And, you know, for those who don't identify as Black, I tell a story to describe what I hope for non-Black readers. And that is that when I lived in Philadelphia, we used to go to a Greek festival and we loved me, my husband and my daughter loved this Greek festival. The dancing, the food was delicious. We enjoyed it so much. But we never decided to take the stage and dance alongside them. We never told the person who was making the baklava that maybe they should add a little bit more this or that to it. We simply sat in the presence of this cultural experience, enjoyed it, ate well, you know, laughed, but we didn't try to center ourselves in that experience. And so that's what I hope for non-Black readers, because there are some universal themes around joy that they can gather, but that also that they can sit in admiration of how our joy shows up. More from my conversation with Tracy after the break. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity. That it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements. And to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It's crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a back seat. That's where release the pressure comes in. It's all about us, Black women seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or our community, your health is invaluable. Let's help to get our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head over to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. 
And Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, online and in-store. Some of my favorites are the jewelry from Hey Maeve and the skincare products from Kaja. For the entire month of May, join Macy's in supporting AAPI-owned fashion brands. You can show your support by donating online or by rounding up in store to benefit APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Join me by rounding up your purchase to the nearest dollar at checkout to support API scholars, an educational nonprofit. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander owned brands at Macy's.com or in store. You may be aware that most people who are Black have O type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies and life saving measures. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? You, along with the American Red Cross, regardless of your blood type, can help by donating blood. Every day, our blood saves lives and eases the pain for those living with sickle cell. When you donate blood, there is a direct positive impact within our community. Right now, there is great need for blood donations in the African-American community. Every donation counts and makes a difference in someone's life. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. Are you ready for a family vacation you will never forget? One where anything is possible? If so, it's time to plan your getaway to sunny Orlando. Orlando really is the ultimate family destination. It's time to break out the matching bedazzled t-shirt, dust off your go-to dad jokes, and prepare for exciting thrills, never-ending food festivals, and fresh new dining experiences, and so much more. Of course, you know that Orlando is the theme park capital of the world, with 15 of the world's top theme parks and water parks all in one place, and beyond the parks, there is also excitement and family fun around every corner. If you're ready to plan an epic Orlando vacation, but you're not sure where to start, you can talk one-on-one with one of their Visit Orlando vacation planners. In Orlando, anything is possible. If you can imagine it, plan your escape today and save at visitorlando.com. So you already have referenced the we've been knowing kind of thing. And so chapter eight of your book is called We've Always Known Black Somatic Experiencing. And before you give us a treat and read a little bit from that chapter, I'd love to hear why you felt like it was important to write about the ways that our bodies intersect and interact with trauma. I think first and foremost, because I had a very distinct experience. When I was sick for those eight or nine months, the one thing that held me down Once I had exhausted all the movies on Netflix, (laughs) I started watching stand-up comedy shows back to back. I mean, random people I would have never watched before, but it was something about like the laughter. Every day I turn on one or two stand-up comedy specials and I would laugh. And in those moments, I felt better. The pain was less. And so I began to recognize the power of my laughter and humor and joy in that moment. And so I knew that I had to talk about it. But one thing I didn't want to do was to position it like it was something new. Like it was like, oh, I have this big revelation about joy. And as I began to do research, I realized, no, my ancestors have been knowing this. Like this is the basis of how we've survived and thrived 
since we've been brought to these shores. And so that was like the main two reasons I think that I wanted to write about it. So will you read us an excerpt? I will. So I just talked to you about doing the research and like trying to understand how I was processing my own trauma, but then also like how our ancestors had been knowing. And so that's where I'll start here. I learned about the real ways disease is fueled by trauma. I could finally connect the dots between the PTSD I already lived with, the breakneck speed at which I was working, the racial violence that had recently touched my family and my body's complete breakdown. But before I could throw a pity party and cry out, why me? I shifted my reading and conversations to the ways in which the body can also restore itself, the way movement and meditation can shift the nervous system back into a healing state. And it all sounded incredibly familiar. Everything I was uncovering was made real in the stories I'd hear of late night country juke joints where the swaggy twists and lusty grinding of bodies to the rhythm of their blues gave an inexplicable relief to a people who held back their grief out of fear of white terror and disregard. It was made real in my memories of church ladies rocking back and forth, front and back in the black churches of my childhood the way they stomped a hole in the floor and screamed out in pure elation or agony, depending on the Sunday. I've come to realize that they instinctually knew how to move that trauma out of our bodies. We gravitated to things like dance and sports and music, not just because that's what white folks allowed us access to, not just because we were forced at one point to entertain them, but because in a way it was our saving grace. It was physiologically the way we healed ourselves. And maybe that's how we were able to not only survive with our humanity intact, but also retain our joy. There's something about the old hymns, the way those mothers of the church would sway to a beat provided by Sunday shoes and wooden canes. It's like they knew. They didn't have the fancy language, the academic jargon for it. They didn't do any research on somatic experiencing and how moving the body in certain ways can help alter how trauma functions in the body or move it out entirely. They didn't study polyvagal theory or read The Body Keeps the Score. So they didn't tell folks that the quivering of their lips or the rocking side to side was creating bilateral stimulation, which would later be proven to calm a person experiencing trauma-related anxiety. They just had the song, the rhythm the meditation that came in the form of a repeated chorus or ad lib, the call and response that allowed them not only to talk back, but also to talk it out. And in talking it out, even in vague hallelujahs or dubious let them use yous, they didn't have to hold it. The pew was the canvas that could hold whatever they left there. They knew. Now, when you said you were going to read an excerpt, I did not know that you were going to give us a word in a sermon on this here <laughs> podcast. <laughs> beautiful and you know and as you were reading before you would get to the part about like polyvagal theory I'm thinking of this right like oh this is what this is right and you've already said we have been doing this before we had language for this right and so when we talk about like all these new age healing practices they're really not so new age because we've had them all along like our ancestors have given this to us and have demonstrated this for us and we're really just kind of tapping back into it Absolutely. And I want us to connect the dots, right? I want us to understand that what we're doing now with this idea of therapy, which back then was the kitchen table or the salon, right? You know, that this isn't new and that our ancestors are like, go, run on, get healed, go on, baby. <laughs> you know, that's what they're saying to us. I mean, that it's okay. We don't have to feel guilty. 
Mm-hmm. So at what point, Tracy, did you notice that the experiences you were having in terms of like the headaches and the triggers and the things in your body, at what point did you know that those were connected to dramatic experiences? Honestly, I did not know until I was on the table of an acupuncturist getting what I thought would be just acupuncture services for pain, right? Like just to help me manage the pain of what I was going through. And my acupuncturist took the needle and I had been getting acupuncture, so I wasn't scared of the needles or anything like that. And she put a needle right near the clavicle or like around my shoulder. And when she put the needle in, I immediately wailed. I cried. I sobbed. And it's funny to talk about it now because I was sobbing, but I was also like looking at her like, what's going on? What's happening to me? I don't know what's happening. And so that was the first time she said, this is common. Sometimes people, I will hit a point and people will cry because there may have been some trauma or something that was trapped in the body. And that was the first time I had talked about it. I had read about it. I, you know, I'd said, oh yeah, mind-body connection. But that made it so real to me that there was something in my body that needed to be let out. And I cried so hard. But when I got finished crying, I felt such a huge relief. So that was the first moment. Yeah. And you've already given us such a beautiful excerpt and there are other examples in the book of you writing so colorfully about like dance and church experiences Mm -hmm. and all of those things. Can you say a little bit more about like how movement and different kinds of practices help you to address stored trauma? Like what kinds of things do you do? Well, what I'm doing right now, which is very, it seems so simple, but it's not easy for me as I'm walking daily. I felt like this call, I guess, to walk, but I would do it for like a week and then stop (laughs) for like some months. But what I'm finding is the walking and my therapist said, that's bilateral stimulation. Your legs are moving back and forth. I felt such a calm. It was almost like a meditation for me. Yoga has been extremely helpful with moving stuff around in my body and dancing. Like me and my daughter, we get to in, okay? <laughs> so we'll turn on something. She knows all the songs from the 90s, right? Because she has old mama. So, <laughs> you know, we will dance and, and break it down. And I find that the movement is so healing for me. And it's interesting because on the other side of it, it's stillness. So the two things that feel very healing for me and allows me to be able to make room for joy in my life feel very opposite. It is movement and it is stillness and being okay with the quiet in my mind as well as around me. And I move just to get the quiet. So like I'm determined to maintain stillness, but at the same time, movement you know, has been an important part of that also. So you talked earlier, Tracy, about protecting your joy and like how only certain people can hold that for you. And you also wrote in the book about choosing joy might mean leaving a place or a person that no longer serves you. And I think that this is something that we often hear Black women talk about, at least a little bit more commonly now, which really is kind of setting boundaries, right? But I'm curious to hear like what that process has been like for you, because it feels very easy to kind of say, but I think it's much more difficult in practice. So can you say a little bit about what that's been like for you? much more difficult. (laughs) It's very challenging. I am a clingy person, you know, or my personality is one that wants to hold on. And that's for all the nouns, person, people, places, and things, right? And on the flip side of that, I think that I've also been one of those type of people that 
does things afraid. So even though there's fear around letting something go or leaving a place, there's also been a very, if I have a clear call or understanding that I need to do a thing, I'll do it despite that fear, despite what I might be feeling in that moment. So that's everything from leaving Louisville, Kentucky at 21 with $300 in my pocket and a budget rental van filled with my grandmother's furniture and moving to Chicago, the South side of Chicago with the hopes of something. (laughs) I don't even know what I was hoping for. And so the migrations, my own personal migrations that I've had has been all about being willing to let go even when I didn't want to. With people, it's much more challenging for me because I tend to want to extend grace and give people the benefit of doubt. And also me recognizing that sometimes letting go isn't about this person did a bad thing to me. It, sometimes it is just about it's time that the relationship has reached its natural end or its natural pause. One of the things that I talk about choosing joy might mean leaving, but it also does not necessarily mean that you won't return. Mm -hmm. And so me leaving Louisville and then I came back 20 some odd years later to kind of make peace with some of the reasons why I left. But I had to be ready for that, right? We have to be ready for that return piece of it. So yeah, I'm glad that's the conversation that Black women nowadays are more willing to set those boundaries because we've needed to. We hold up, you know, our mothers and our grandmothers and our great aunties for like sticking it out and holding on. What we don't often realize is that they had different choices and sometimes they didn't have the choices. They lived during a time where a woman couldn't even get a bank account, couldn't even buy a home. Right. And so I would argue that great grandmother's like, girl, you better go on. <laughs> you know, I couldn't, but you can mm-hmm. go. Yeah. So as we wrap up, I want to do some kind of rapid fire, but not super rapid fire questions just to kind of close us out. So how do we translate resistance to joy? It's when we are strategically wielding our joy for a greater purpose, right? So the example is the protest of summer 2020. In the midst of like confrontation, there was also laughter and singing and it's a defiance. Like you, this is a part of my humanity you can't take away from me. How do we translate resilience? That's that bounce back thing that Black folks just have, right? Like we have had the worst done to us and yet we're still here, right? Which means that individually we all have the power to come back from, overcome, transform whatever challenges we might have. And how do we translate restoration? Restoration is all about healing. And so there is this power that joy has to soothe, to calm, to help us see bigger than the problems that might be ever present, you know? And so it is a mechanism for healing whatever it is that we might be going through. And what words of advice or encouragement do you have for people who feel like they haven't tapped into the joy in their lives? I would say that it's okay. Number one, grace yourself and understand that you've been surviving and that's okay. But now if we want to move past survival into a life of intention and agency and all those, joy has never left you. You just have to do the work of digging it up and accessing it. But it's not out there. It's still very much in you. Beautiful. And where can we find you, Tracy? And where can we find a copy of Black Joy? 
Black Joy is available everywhere books are sold, preferably Black-owned independent bookstores if you can. An entry point to finding me is TracyMLewis.com. I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook as TMLG Writer or TM Lewis. And that's where you can get me. Perfect. And we will be sure to include all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me, Tracy. I'm so glad Tracy was able to share her expertise with us today. To learn more about her and to grab a copy of her book, be sure to visit the show notes at therapyforblackgirls.com slash session 258. And be sure to text two of your girls and tell them to check out the episode right now. If you're looking for a therapist in your area, be sure to check out our therapist directory at therapyforblackgirls.com slash directory. And if you want to continue digging into this topic or just be in community with other sisters, come on over and join us in the Sister Circle. It's our cozy corner of the internet designed just for Black women. You can join us at community.therapyforblackgirls.com. This episode was produced by Frida Lucas and Elise Ellis, and editing was done by Dennison Bradford. Thank y'all so much for joining me again this week. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all real soon. Take good care. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. You may have heard that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? Regardless of blood type, every day our blood saves lives and eases the pain of those living with sickle cell. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also empower you with a sense of complete control? Enter Conair Bomb, your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for women. From the ultimate girl bomb grip and professional grade blades, you don't have to compromise and settle for less. Conair Girl Bomb equips you with the precision and power previously reserved for men's grooming tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb. Available at conairgirlbomb.com or a retailer near you. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses 
thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Forum understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.